few nights ago, we had some friends over for dinner, and we had a great time, but Jude, my firstborn, who's in the middle school group right now, was just a bit off that night. Normally, if you know Jude, he is charming and intelligent and the life of the party, which he did not get from me at all. But for whatever reason, he was just not himself. He was a bit rude and wild. That's actually not too far out of character, but he's 11. And he's honestly a bit churlish. And so our friends went home, and we put the littles to sleep. And I sat down with Jude, kind of at the foot of the bed for the father-son talk, and just, you know, started to go in gentle, you know, because I know I'm an Enneagram type one. Some of you don't know what that means. I know what that means. I'm just like father wound waiting to happen, all right? So I'm, I'm aware of that. So I, I ease in. Hey, you know, did you, how, how was your day today? Did anything bad, anything bad happen at school today? And he's in that like pre-teenager phase. So like his language devolved a few months ago to like yes, no, or a grunt. And so no. And we have a great relationship, but it was not uh, obvious at that moment. Okay, um, are you doing okay? Yes. Anything you want to talk about? Mm. Okay. So like, but I could just tell something was not right, you know? And so I poke and I prod for a few minutes and there's an awkward silence. And then about five or 10 minutes in, all, it's like something just breaks. And he starts to cry. And he said, quote, Dad, I feel like the only place where I can be myself is with you or mom. Everywhere else, I feel like I have to put on, quote, a false show. I have to be like the ham, I, or what did he say? I have to be the class clown in order to get people to like me. And you know, life comes down to a series of moments, right? And so I just felt this weight settle over the foot of my bed in that moment. And if you're a parent, you're there like, and you're supposed to know what to do. And, you, and it's terrifying, you have no idea what to do, <laughs> but you're supposed to know, right? So okay, you're there. And so I just said, Jude, um, is that true or is that a lie? And he said, it's a lie. And I said, what's the truth, you know? And it was, I don't know. And it was, the truth is that you're loved and you're lovable. And you have all sorts of problems and issues, and I'm happy to help you figure out what they are. But, um, <laughs> but you are also loved and lovable. And, and we had this beautiful conversation. The next morning we got up, we read the Bible together, and I prayed, and he went off to school, and he was back to himself. We had a great week and a great weekend. But it was a Thursday morning, and he, he went off to school, which was the day I write my teaching, and it just got me thinking, like, what if I hadn't been there? What if he had internalized that lie? What if it never came to the surface? What if it was never exposed as a lie? Or what if worse, I had been there, but I had added to that lie, like fuel on the fire. Yeah, well, you know, the world's a dog-eat-dog place or whatever, and you gotta, like, you gotta make your mark or something like that. What if he had internalized that lie? What if he had started to believe that lie? What if over time that lie had become the truth? And then what if you were to project that out 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, over a lifetime? What would that lie that became the truth, how would it work itself out in his life trajectory? My guess is he would end up in a very different spot than a man who is well aware from a young age that I'm loved and I'm lovable with all of my stuff. My point is what we believe about our identity and our calling has all sorts of ramifications for who we do and do not become, for what we do and do not do with our life. 
You see, Jude, just a few weeks before his 12th birthday, is just starting to go on a journey of discovering his identity and calling. And this is a journey that all followers of Jesus are invited to go on. Sadly, a lot of them never do. But all of you are invited. And I would argue that one of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is discovering our identity and calling. And I'm not alone here. Augustine, for example, in 400 AD in his famous book, Confessions, said this, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And then his famous prayer, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. In the 12th century, the German theologian Messeter Eckhart said, no one can know God who does not first know himself. Around the same time in Rome, the Dominican scholar St. Catherine said almost, I'm sorry, "When when we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze. In the 15th century, the Spanish mystic St. Teresa of Avila put it this way, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from lack of self-knowledge. And if you want to write this off as like a Catholic mystic thing, which is your problem, but if you want to write it off for that, here's John Calvin himself, anything but a mystic or a Catholic. In his tome, Institutes of Christian Religion, he said this, quote, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. It is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. And then more recently, the Catholic monk Thomas Merton in his famous book on contemplative prayer said, for me to be a saint means to be myself. And don't read that out of context. He's not at all saying, just you do you, you're a snowflake. He's not saying that. Therefore, you're a snowflake. You sin in all sorts of special and unique ways. Like, I agree. Here's what he goes on to say. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. My point is that for over a millennia and a half, so many teachers of the way of Jesus have said that self-awareness isn't just a self-help therapeutic kind of emotional candy corn, but it is a key part of our apprenticeship to Jesus. I mean, just think about it for a minute. How many, to pick on an easy target, how many pastors do you know of who started a church, often a mega church, thousands of people who knew the Bible and theology backwards and forwards, were well-educated a lot of the time, who woke up every single day, read the Bible, prayed, but then at some point imploded and dragged hundreds or thousands of people down the well with them, all because they were blind to their own shadow side, running from a father wound that went back two or three decades, leaving a trail of dead bodies in their wake. Or to bring it closer to home, how many couples do you know that had so much potential to make a life together but ended a relationship or a marriage before it even got off the ground because they just did not know their own inner beauty and their own inner brokenness, and you have to live in that tension, or the inner beauty and the inner brokenness of their spouse or significant other. Or to bring it even closer to home, how many parents do you know your own mom, your own dad, who missed it. They did not know their own identity and calling, and so they were blind to their shadow side. They were blind to their own unhealth or immaturity or mother wound or family of origin or baggage from this, that, or the other, and it just leaked unhealth onto you and your siblings or friends and family. Or they did not know a child's identity 
or a child's calling. And so they ended up forcing you or whoever into clothes that you were never meant to wear, and it was a straitjacket, and it was suffocating, and you got out the second you turned whatever. You were gone, and what could have been never was. My point is that our self-awareness in the language of therapy, or our lack of self-awareness, has a direct bearing on our relationship to God, our relationship to other people, in particular family, friends, but even a coworker, a boss, all of that, and on our relationship to our own soul. I can't think of a better summary of the why behind this practice than from Pete Scazzaro. He writes this, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. Let's think about that for a minute. The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live somebody else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. So this isn't just about self-awareness, it's about spiritual formation. Because when I go on the journey of self-discovery, a good bit of what I discover about myself is brokenness, not just beauty, right? It's a both and. Like, I am a snowflake, I sin in all sorts of ways that are creative. And wow, we've never thought of that one before. And at the same time, there's an inner beauty to me and to every one of you in the room. And so as we become self-aware, we become aware of the good and the bad and even the ugly in our own soul. The places where we are deeply wounded and in need of healing. The places where we're not wounded at all, we're just kind of messed up, and we're a bit of a jerk and need to get free and grow up and mature. But this is why so many people never go on the journey of self-discovery. It's too much work, it's too scary, they don't feel safe in the love of the Father because you ironically have to feel safe in the love of the Father and ideally of the family in order to face your own shadow side, to have the courage to stand up knowing I'm loved and I'm loved into someone and something better than I am now. And so instead, people just live stuck in the loop of unhealthy or even toxic patterns. But facing your shadow side, as we'll call it in a few weeks, is just the beginning of change and healing and freedom and growth and maturity, or what is called spiritual formation, where you are formed to be more like Jesus. And the beauty of spiritual formation, or if you just wanna call it following Jesus, is that as you become more like Jesus, as you apprentice under Jesus and a year goes by, a decade goes by, and you think of our spiritual formation paradigm, you um, put your life before teaching and practice and community and the Holy Spirit, as you walk down that path, ironically, you don't become like you know, a clone where like you drink the Kool-Aid, you wear the white jumper, and like, you know what I'm saying? You actually become more unique, not less. Right? You actually become more your real true self. You stop getting sucked into the stereotypes of our city, which is everybody has to be unique, which means nobody is really unique because we all have weird hair and we all have tattoos and piercings and like, we're so unique. Yeah, but when everybody's unique, nobody's unique, right? You just get sucked in to the same advertisement. But actually, as you follow Jesus, as you become more like Jesus, you become more your real true self, the best version of who God thought you up to be. As you become more Jesus-ear, you become more you-ear. I know that's not a word. All you educators in the room, I'm sorry, but whatever, I graduated. It's all over now, right? Now, some of you think, all right, so where, I don't know, I'm a bit of a skeptic, where are you getting all of this from? I promise from Jesus. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter three. We'll start here. I just wanna show you a story or two or three 
Um, first, let's start off with Jesus himself in Matthew chapter three. Take a look at a well-known story in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John said, well, that sounds okay, whatever you said. As, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, New Testament scholars debate and argue, okay, at what point did Jesus become self-aware of his identity and calling? Or put another way, at what point did Jesus realized that he was the son of God. So some argue from birth or like early consciousness. Others argue, well, at least by age 12. If you know that story, he's at the temple. I had to be about my father's business. But quite a few actually argue right here. Either way, this is a key moment in Jesus' journey of self-discovery. Heaven was open, like literally rent in the sky, and then the voice, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, we read that thousands of years later, post-Nicene Creed, if you know what that is, and the way that Greek philosophy and metaphysics has shaped the way we think about theology, and that's all fine. And so we read that in like an ontological, God is the Father, Jesus is the Son. Great. But actually, the first kind of like surface level reading of this, Son of God was a moniker all through the Hebrew Scriptures or the Bible of Jesus' day, first for Israel. So if you read the book of Exodus, Israel is called the Son of God, and then later for the Messiah. So all the Hebrew prophets peer over the horizon and see a figure that is yet to come that they call the Messiah or the Anointed One who's the long-awaited King of Israel and of the world, and they call him the Son of God. All that to say, this is a statement about Jesus' identity, but also about his calling. And, and notice how the two are joined at the hip. So we live in this fascinating cultural moment where our culture, all our culture wants to talk about is what you do, right? And in your character, it doesn't really matter all that much. As long as you make money or you contribute to the bottom line or you're famous or you have followers on Instagram or six-pack abs or whatever it is that I don't have. That. Right? And so often in the church, there's this overreaction. It's like, no, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. There's that cliche that I can't stand. You know, we're human beings, not human doings. I just want to throw up in my mouth a little bit every time I hear that. It's like, have you not read Genesis? Like, so that you may rule. You can't separate your being and your doing. Like, you can't. Not you shouldn't. You can't. What you do flows out of who you are and vice versa. They live in a symbiotic relationship. And so for Jesus, his identity, you're the Messiah, is tied to his calling to usher in the kingdom of God. The same is true for you. Your identity, who you are, who you're not, is tied to your calling, what you are called to do, what you're not called to do. But watch what happens. Chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, most of you know this story, but just pay close attention. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, notice that, if, what did Jesus, what did the father just say? You are my son, right? So notice here, like the first thought, seed of doubt, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a line from Deuteronomy. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels to to play this game. Here's another quote. They will lift you up by the hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I see you, Isaiah, I raise you Deuteronomy chapter six. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The exact opposite of Jesus' identity and calling. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. In the story, Jesus is tempted by the devil, but notice what he is tempted by. It's not to, you know, sex, drugs, and alcohol, or whatever. It's a temptation, it's not even to sin, per se. It's a temptation to hand over his identity and calling, and to settle for a status quo kind of life. And Jesus is not the only one to face this kind of a temptation. Let me show you another story. Turn to John chapter one. To the right, John chapter one. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents uh, at the beginning, but John is just a book or two to the right. John chapter one, here's another story I love. Speaking of John the Baptist. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, notice the question, who he was. John chapter one, verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, well then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, quote, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the ways of the Lord. Now, the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, well, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Why do you do what you do? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Notice that John is crystal clear on who he is and who he isn't, what he is called to do, what he isn't called to do. Both are important. In fact, he has three no's for one yes. Are you the Messiah? I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? There's an obscure prophecy about the second coming of Elijah. Nope, not me. Are you the prophet? There's another obscure prophecy from Deuteronomy as well, another figure on the horizon. Is that you? No, not me. Who are you then? I am, quote, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. It's like a laser. You know, it's just as important to know who you aren't as to know who you are, to know what you're not called to do. Yep, that's not me. That sounds great. Elijah, he sounds amazing. That's not me. The Messiah, I'm most definitely not the Messiah. The prophet, wow, that would be really cool. I would love to say yes. In fact, I'm tempted to say, yeah, that's me, I'm the prophet. Who's the prophet? I'm the prophet. (laughs) But no, that's not who I am. And so that's not what I'm called to do. I baptize, why do you baptize? Well, because I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. John's, here's my point, John's firm grasp on his identity, on his calling, on his sense of not called to that, not called to that, not called to that, yet that, that one thing, gave shape to his life. Turn one more to Matthew chapter 16, to the left one more time, Matthew chapter 16. 
Um, if you don't have a Bible, feel free just to sit there and feel guilty until next week, and then um, feel free to get one at Powell's and bring it along, or download the app on your phone. I'm just kidding, but it's less boring if you take a Bible with you to church. How's that for a pitch? Matthew chapter 16, take a look at one more story. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his apprentices, who do people say the Son of Man is? So here, here's that question over and over again. They replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So now everybody's confused. Like people think that John the Baptist is the Messiah and Jesus who actually is the Messiah, they think he's John the Baptist. Apparently discovering your identity and calling can be just a bit tricky, right? But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Notice the seamless integration between self-knowledge and God-knowledge. Simon Peter answered, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Like, absolutely. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades itself will not overcome it. Now, the Protestant and Catholic church are split right down the middle over how to interpret this one line in 18. So if you know the backstory, Catholics interpret this to mean that Peter is the rock, or if you prefer the foundation, that the house of the church is built on. Therefore, Peter's successor, all the way down to the rock star that is Pope Francis, um, stand on that ground. And then Protestants argue, no, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's what Peter said, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. That, Jesus himself, that is the rock, that is the foundation that the church is built on. Now, obviously, I lean toward the second half of that debate, but what's easy to miss in all of the back and forth, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> what's easy to miss, it's okay, you don't need to get up, we're welcome to have a little background noise, all right, is that in Greek, it's a play on words. So Peter is Petros in Greek, which literally means the rock. So not only was the first pope, he's like the original Dwayne Johnson, like his name is actually the rock. <laughs> like it's like an added name, fake name later, like his name was actually, he was born with the name, what's your name? The rock, oh wow, okay. Are you human? I don't even think you're human. And you don't age and you just keep getting stronger, it's so weird. And then rock, Rock is the exact same word. So in Greek, it's you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. It's a play on words. Now, all that to say, whatever the debate, whatever's, whoever's right about the debate, this at its core is a story about Peter discovering his identity and calling. And from here on out, if you know Peter's story, it gave shape to his life. From here on out, he became the leader of the 12, then he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem for a while, and then kind of the church through the Mediterranean and the early church as a whole, and he's in story after story after story. And later, just like Jesus, he is tempted to set it all aside, and he, unlike Jesus, gave in, like, I don't know the man. But then later, there's healing on the other side of that. Now, three examples. John the Baptist, Jesus of Nazareth, Peter the Pope. I could give you hundreds more, but in all three, we don't have time for that, in all three, the common denominator is very simple. All three have to go on a journey to discover their identity and calling, even Jesus himself. And this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's part of it. You have to go on that, not have to, you are invited to go on that same journey of discovery, 
of your identity and your calling. Now, for most of us, it's a process, not an event. Yes, there are key moments in the journey, but it's, it's like that. It's a journey that for most of us is a lifetime. Here's one framework you may or may not find helpful of seven sages of discovery of your identity and calling that I adapted from the work of Dr. Bobby Clinton from Fuller Seminary. He did this exhaustive study of a thousand plus leaders in the kingdom of God from the Bible, from church history, from all around the world. And his goal was to look for, is there some kind of a pattern over hundreds, over thousands of men and women um, and the journey that they go on with Jesus. And at the end, he said, yes, there absolutely is. So here's my adaptation. Stage one, he called sacred foundations. This is the family you were born into, the socioeconomic status that you grew up in and the options it either gave you or did not give you. It's your gender, it's your Myers-Briggs type, it's the year that you were born in, very different to be born in 1980 versus you know, 2017 versus 1312 or whatever, it's your culture. And you have little to no control over any of this, but all of it, your sacred foundations are the first signpost to point you forward into your identity and the call of God in your life. Next is discovery. And this is a messy, kind of long and awkward stage for a lot of us. And you have your Jesus in the Jordan River kind of moments where there's like a revelation and a voice from heaven or whatever. And then a lot of us just wander in the wilderness for a while after that, a bit confused. And you know, this is a season of learning and of unlearning who you are, who you're not. You do some things and you just come alive and people around you say, oh my gosh, like did you feel that? You, like you should think about doing more of that. And you do other things and you just die a little bit inside and people around you just kind of like smile at you and you know, have you ever thought about doing something else with your, your life, you know? Like maybe there's something else that God made you, because it's not that, whatever. And that's actually all part of it. Success and failure is all part of that kind of three steps forward, two steps back. Every failure is actually a gift because now you know one more thing that you're not called to do, right? It's a beautiful thing like by way of elimination. And so there's this messy process of question and community and Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram Conference and a prophetic word over your life and sitting in something that God is stirring your soul. And for a lot of us, this isn't like a month or two, it's a year or five or 10 or a decade or two. Then at some point, like you get to the spot where you start to have a firmer grasp, and you don't have all the answers, but on like, I think this is my identity, I think this is my calling, I think this is who God made me to grow and mature into, and what God made me to do with my 50, 60, 80, however many years of life. And at some point, then you have to like actually step out. You have to go for it. You have to enroll in the program or start the business or register the domain name or plant the church or ask her out. Just start there, okay? Whatever it is or have a child or make the record or whatever your thing is. And then comes stage four, which is getting good. So Malcolm Gladwell, of course, made this famous, um, the Vienna study, one of many studies that all make the exact same point that it takes right around 10,000 hours to get really good at anything. Now, for most of us, if you, you know, work at a craft of some kind for 40 or so hours a week, that's about a decade of your life. So just think about that. If you start at, I don't know, 25 or something like that, it's not until you're 35 that you actually start to get really good at whatever your craft is. If it's marketing or sales or engineering or parenting or teaching the Bible or whatever, some of you... There's a reason that there's nobody that was around when I was preaching the Bible at first. Like, none of them are still here. They all left because it was so bad. You have no idea, right? 
all of us, it takes time. And it's one of the frustrating things about parenting is right when you're starting to get the hang of it, your kids all turn 18 and go away to college and it's too late and you've just damaged them for the rest of their life. <laughs> and there's, your only hope is grandkids at that point, right? Oh my gosh, this, that's a whole other teaching series. Then at some point in there, you hit what a lot of people call the wall. And this isn't a stage. Um, it's because it can happen at any point in the journey. And for most of us, it happens more than once. In fact, if you're really serious about apprenticeship to Jesus, you might hit it two, three, four, five times in your life. It's some kind of a crisis, what St. John called the dark night of the soul, where your identity and calling is tested, but in that moment, it is refined. It is a moment of truth where you divide in your autobiography from there on out, you define your life by the before and after category. And a lot of people tragically never make it past the wall. Like, I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of people hit that wall and go back to the status quo, give up on the dream, never go for it. But if you hang with God through it, if you don't give up, even in the doubt, even in the darkness, even in the confusion, even in the where is God and I feel so alone right now, and this is actually part of the journey. It's actually not about God's absence, it's actually about God's presence, even if he feels a million miles away. And if you hang in there with God and you come out the other side, you come out changed from the core of your being out. You come a little bit beat up, but yet at the same time made whole at a soul level. You come out like pretty humbled and often a little bit embarrassed even because there's a failure here, there was nothing to brag about there, but yet at the same time there's a new freedom that comes to you, not just an outer freedom, we all have that, but an inner freedom, a deep sense of joy and contentment and confidence in your life with God. And this is a beautiful moment. Again, this is not a stage. It can come at any point in your journey from 15 years old to 55 years old, and it will come for most of us more than once. I've been through at least two, if not three, in my life, and each one was brutal and gut-wrenching, and I would never have signed up for it. And now, in hindsight, I thank God for each and every one because I came out the other side deeply changed, deeply set right at a core level. Still a long ways to go, as is obvious, listen to me talk for more than five minutes. Still a long ways to go, but I'm, I would not trade it for the world. That said, the next stage is staying faithful and fruitful. It's a very different stage from, you know, say discovery or stepping out when you're, I don't know, 20-something or whatever. Staying faithful or fruitful, the odds are you're more like in your 30s or 40s or 50s. And it's a very different emotional posture, the kind of idealism of youth, which is a great thing. Enjoy it while it lasts. It won't last long. Um, it has kind of, there's that cynic, I'm sorry, see, I'm in process. It has worn off. You're dealing with one of the key tasks of apprenticeship to Jesus in your midlife years, and that is dealing with disappointment. The odds are that you're tired. If you, if you have a family, you're raising children, uh, you're paying the mortgage, you're into your career 10, 20 years, and it's great, but like the, the honeymoon period is over. If you're single, you're dealing with that and loneliness and whatever else comes with it and all the good. But actually this stage, which for a lot of us is the longest stage of our life, can actually be the best, some of the best years of your life, for sure some of the most fruitful years of your life. Remember that we live in an ageist society that's all about the idealization of youth, in particular because we've limited human beings to an animal, and so everything that is human is, you know, your six-pack ab or your looks or your full head of hair or whatever, and so once the abs go away and the hair goes with it, or whatever your story, some of you are like, never, mm-hmm, it's going to happen. <laughs> Trust me, like the odds are not in your favor, all right? 
Um, but at, at some point, so like we idolize youth, but we forget that's the metric system of the United States of America and the Western capitalistic, materialistic world. That's not the metric system of the kingdom of God. And if you set your metrics for success, not by whatever magazine you subscribe to or whatever Instagram feed you have, but you set your metrics for success by the way and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, which is so life-giving. Talk about a breath of fresh air. It's a whole other metric system. It's a whole other value system. And by the value system of of the kingdom of God, your 30s will be more fruitful than your 20s, your 40s will be more fruitful than your 30s, your 50s will be more fruitful than your, I'm bad at math, 40s, and so on and so forth, like more and more and more fruitfulness. I read Psalm 92 with my kids last night, the psalm for the Sabbath day. You will be like a palm tree bearing fruit even in old age. The palm tree, one of the few trees in the world that never stops bearing fruit, that actually bears more the older it gets. Like that is the word picture in Psalm 92 for the life of a follower of Jesus. This is God's will for your life that you bear much fruit. And your best years, not by the metric system of the six-pack abs or whatever, your best years by the metric system of the kingdom of God, if you're 20, are far ahead of you. But it takes faithfulness. Without no faithfulness, there is no fruitfulness. And because so few of us are willing to go down the path of faithfulness, we never experience the fruitfulness that God has waiting for us. Now, if you make it past that stage, and sadly a lot of people don't, then the next stage is ending well. Um, I'm not here yet, but it's just starting to come on my radar, just way down there. But you know, it's interesting, you watch so many people start really well and then end in disaster. The Bible is full of examples. Of course, King Saul is the classic example in the Bible. So is the weekly news, like literally every single weekly news cycle from Harvey Weinstein and Hollywood to um, Suu Kyi right now in Myanmar. Like, it doesn't matter how well you started. If you're a full-on Nobel Peace Prize winner, if you don't end well, it feels to you and to many others like a failure overall. In the end, your character is destiny. You cannot outrun your character for better or for worse. And so ending well is actually really hard to do. Dr. Clinton um, made the point, he actually worked out the math and said that 30% of the characters in the Bible end well. That's all, 30%. So few people end well, whether it's a marriage or a family, or a career, or a ministry, or a calling. So, many, so few people make it. All of you can, but not a lot of people do. And then finally, if you make it all the way to the end, there's what Dr. Clinton called afterglow. And this is like he said, very few people ever get here, but again, all of you can get here. This is like the elderly grandma or grandpa who just like isn't grouchy and weird, and like, but actually everybody wants to be around her or him, and everybody's asking for advice, and hey grandpa, what would you do about this? And you're just living, you don't have to do anything at this point, you're just living in the afterglow of like, I put in 80 long hard years, now I'm just gonna like watch TV and hang out with my great grandkid. I can't remember his name, but it's going to be great, right? <laughs> This is Eugene Peterson right now in his 80s, and this is Dallas Willard a few years before his death with people coming from all, like uh, top-level leaders coming from all over the world. Yeah, at this point, you don't even have to do anything. You just get to live in the afterglow of a life well-lived. And again, Dr. Clinton said, very few people ever reach this, but every single one of you can if you follow Jesus. Now again, this, may, this framework may or may not be helpful for you. My point is very simple. This is a journey. 
This is not like, oh, we have three months of practice. We have fasting coming up in January, so we better get this done by Christmas, right? Because you have the holidays. Really, we better get this done by the third week of November. So let's discover our identity and calling before the holiday season. And it's, it's not like some of you are like, right? No, wrong. This is a lifelong process for a lot of us. And this journey can be a bit harrowing in our cultural moment. I mean, we're living at this really tenuous time, right, where we're still living in this shift from the last election cycle was honestly about this, this shift from an agrarian society where just um, half a century ago or a century ago, 90% of Americans were farmers. Now 2% of Americans are farmers. So for thousands of years, like you didn't hit 18 and think, what should I do with my life? You thought, what's my dad do? Our last name's Smith. He's the village blacksmith. I think I'll be a smith, right? I think I'll be a blacksmith. Like you never like had the luxury. That's, that's a privilege thing. That comes with wealth, that comes with freedom, that comes with democracy, that comes with urbanization. So there is this freedom that we now have. Like, like God bless if you urban farmer people. Like I, it's not my thing. I like to eat food, but that's about as close as I come to liking farming. I have no desire to be a farmer. So I love that I have the freedom to do something else, to work with my mind rather than with my hands. But yet freedom can be just as much of a tyranny as tyranny, right? The tyranny of what one philosopher called the ought to. So we're in the middle of this shift, you know, this kind of from an agrarian society to an urbanized one, and then at the same time, as this is all happening in the Western world, the family is breaking down. So one of the main jobs of a mom or a dad is to, in the language of Proverbs, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. So if you're a parent, like you're a student more than anything, like I am a student of my children. I literally have an Evernote file for each one of my children where when I see something that I just have this sense, this is a moment, I write it down. So yesterday, it's our Sabbath, and Moses, who's eight, right? Yes, eight. We have so many now, I can't keep track, right? Um, uh, so Moses, who's eight, wants to play the piano. It's like our afternoon, and we're kind of hanging out. I'm reading, whatever. And so he goes to the piano, and he gets out a pad of paper, and he, start, and he draws out a music thing. He just started taking piano lessons, like, what, six months ago? And he's, he's our first kid that actually is into it. Jude's into it, but he doesn't like to practice. Moses is actually into all of it. And so he draws out like a music thing, draws out the treble clef, and then he lays down on the floor, and I hear him going, dun, dun, dun. It sounds a lot like Star Wars, which is awesome. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And it's like that, but a little bit different. And, and he draws out this music thing, and then he gets up, and then he starts to play it. And then he goes back down, da, 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 and then he starts playing. And he's composing the song, and not like how I would compose it on the piano, like actually off the piano. I'm like, who does that? Mozart. I have the next Mozart. Uh, that's my son. That's it, right? I'm like, I'm getting royalties, dude. That's all I have to say, right? So like, that's a little moment where like, that's a little signpost. I, I'm a student. That's a little signpost to like his future. He's in his head. He's creative. He like, so all that to say, one of the jobs of a parent is to study your son or your daughter and to help unfold them into the man or the woman that God created them to be. But what happens when you have a dizzying array of options and you feel this paralysis of like, I could be anything, and you don't have a mom or a dad or a mentor because mom and dad are in the middle of a divorce, dad's gone, we love you, here's money for Oregon State, see ya, bye, whatever it is, thank you for that, but like we need more than that, right? So we live in this fascinating moment where now it's normal to feel aimless 
and a bit lost and confused for a decade of your life, kind of to meander through your 20s. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and tired and paralyzed and decision fatigue and commitment phobia. It's normal to feel anxious and just scared of failure because everybody on Instagram is amazing. They're not actually, but they like, are good with their thumbs. And it's normal to feel insecure, like you don't measure up, you're not cool enough, you're not as successful, you're not as far down the road as so-and-so. If that's how you feel, you are not alone. And my point is not to paint a bleak picture at all. It's to say this is a bit of a harrowing journey, but it's more important that we go on this journey now than ever before. I've been on this journey for a while now, and it has been anything but easy, but it has been so healing and so life-giving. And honestly, it's changed my life, and I've had to make, had to, I've come to a few forks in the road. And each one has been like, wow, there's the easy path, and then there's my identity and calling. And like, there's a huge part of me that just wants to turn the stones to bread. That's, that's a metaphor, I can't actually do that. But there's a huge part of me that wants to settle for the status quo. But at each fork in the road, there is Jesus of Nazareth, who he himself called himself the good shepherd, saying, come and follow me. All that to say, this is a journey that you are invited to go on, that tragically so many people never have the courage to take you're invited to go on it, and not to go on it alone, to go on it with Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and with your community, and I literally mean that. And we're here for you. We can't um, give you a map. There's no map, right? This is about, you have a guide, and he goes by the name of Jesus. There's no map. I can't tell you point A to point B to point to Z. All the, I can give you a compass. We can give you a few like landmarks to look out for on the journey. We can give you some do's and some don'ts. But this is a journey that you have to go on, not only for the next three months, but for the rest of your life with Jesus and with your family and friends. That said, our practice for the coming week is very simple. Go to practicingtheway.org slash identity and calling. We haven't been there for a few months. We had the summer off, and so now we're back up. And then it's really easy kind of to warm you up this week um, with, at your weekly meal with your Bridgetown community. We have two exercises for you. One is just to plot yourself on that timeline, talk about where you're at, the highs and lows of that stage of your life. And two is this thing called Bowen's Scale of differenti Differentiation. He's the founder of Modern Family Systems Theory, has this really helpful framework just to help map yourself and say, all right, where am I and where do I still need to grow and mature? Um, now, that said, so that's it. That's what's on the docket for you if you're up for it with your community in the week ahead. Now, to end, story. There's a famous story that you may or may not know from a rabbinic teacher named Zusa. And when he was an elderly man, the story is quite old actually, there's this interaction where he says this, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses, right, he's a rabbi, that was a thing. They will ask me, why were you not Zusa? Come on, how good is that? Meaning, in the coming world, when you come to the end of this life and you stand before your maker, he will not ask you, why weren't you more like Gerald? I mean, that guy is just the life of the party. Like, why you had to be so serious, John Mark, and you like to be alone all the time? Why couldn't you be an extrovert? Why? Because you didn't make me that way. Like, why? He won't ask you that. He won't ask you, why couldn't you be more like Moses? Or why couldn't you be more like your mom or your dad or your hero or your mentor or whoever it is? He will ask you, why I gave you freedom to be you? And not to be the, the broken you, to be the made whole you. 
I gave you an invitation to follow me, to become the best version of yourself, to become more like Jesus, and in doing so to become the man or the woman or the child that I had in mind when I thought you into existence because you are, in the language of Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not an accident. Some of you think that you're an accident because your parents think you're an accident. You are not an accident. All life is a miracle. You are a miracle. All life is sacred. There is no way. You are invaluable. There is no way to measure or value or quantify you. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made before you were ever a thought in your mother or father's mind, much less before you were ever born. In the language of Psalm 139, quote, all the days ordained were written in God's book before one of them came to be. God has, in the language of Ephesians, prepared good works for you to walk in them. This is your destiny, not just your identity and your calling. And the invitation of Jesus is to go on that journey, to become that man or that woman. And in the meantime, because it is a journey, to find the goodness of God in your actual life. So often we want to find the goodness of God in the life that we wish we had, in the person that we wish we were, in the job that we wish we had to wake up to tomorrow morning. And it's not bad to dream. We'll talk more about that later. But the invitation of Jesus is to find the goodness of God in your actual life, in the season of life as you are single, little children, empty nester, just confused, in a job you love, in a job you hate, crystal clear in your identity and calling still just at the early stage, old, young, the invitation of Jesus is to find the goodness of God in your actual life. Because if you open your eyes and you slow down long enough to let go of the hurry and let your soul catch up with your body and be present to God, to the world around you, and to your own soul, you will find that there is so much goodness waiting for you. Let's stand and pray.